Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Penguin Books, publisher of Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day by Ben Laurie. It's a story collection. It's filled with adult fables. These are short. These are really short. They're oddly haunting. They're dreamlike. They're magical. They will move you in unexpected ways. There's a story involving an octopus. There's a story involving Bigfoot. There's even a story in the book that's not supposed to be in the book. It's called The TV. It was originally published in The New Yorker. This is Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day. Kirkus Reviews calls it, quote, one of a kind, a thoroughly entertaining antidote to rigid thinking and excessive seriousness. End quote. Who doesn't need that? Who doesn't need an antidote to rigid thinking and excessive seriousness? Stories for nighttime and some for the day. It's available now by Ben Lurie. Go and get it. It's a book. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. All right, everybody, here we go again. My name is Brad Listy. This is the show. It's other people. Thanks for being here. We got a good one lined up for you today. Before we get rolling, I want to do some uh, business stuff. want to let you know that Other People is now available on Stitcher. If you're a fan of the Stitcher app, you can listen to other people right there on the Stitcher app. Subscribe for free. The app is free. It's all free. We're available on Stitcher, stitcher.com. Check it out. Uh, while I'm at it, I should mention that The Nervous Breakdown, my online culture magazine and literary community, it has its own podcasts, its own audio content. All of that audio content now available on Stitcher too. So check out The Nervous Breakdown on Stitcher uh, and subscribe to it. Subscribe to it all. It's free. It's fun. Go do it. Uh, what else? Well, I've managed to uh, get some feedback on the podcast. I thought I would share it with you. Uh, it's my, my earliest review, I guess you could say. It comes to me from a buddy of mine named Scott Potasnik. He, uh, he felt compelled to text me uh, about uh, the show to let me know his feelings about it. Uh, he says, quote, It was good. You became more comfortable as it went on. I'm glad you didn't shy away from the nasty fruit in the ass stuff. But you should have gone even deeper, no pun intended, end quote. Scott is referring to my conversation with Melissa Phoebos, author of Whip Smart in episode two. 
Uh, I'll let you listen to it to figure out what fruit, uh, fruit in the ass stuff means. Uh, Scott also had to say, quote, your podcast voice, and he puts the word voice in quotes, your podcast voice frightens me. You and Wolf Blitzer could have a monotone off. Nevertheless, I'm entertained thus far, so that's good, end quote. So I guess I sound like Wolf Blitzer on this thing. I guess, uh, you know, am I restrained? I'm trying hard to be as natural as possible and to talk like I normally talk when I'm on the podcast. Like, this is hopefully how I normally talk, but I think when you sit in front of a microphone, you naturally start getting into a little bit of broadcast mode, and I don't want to sound too much like a, you know, like some sort of radio DJ, but... Apparently what's happening is that I sound something like Wolf Blitzer. This is the first time I've ever heard of this. And I'm assuming it's because uh, I'm, I'm on the mic. But maybe I sound like Wolf Blitzer normally. Is that what it is? Am I monotone? I don't know. Uh, if you guys have thoughts, if you want to weigh in on this or other matters, remember you can email me at letters at otherpeoplepod.com. You can also tweet at me at otherpeoplepod if that works better. Uh, okay, so moving on uh, with some thoughts about the whole podcast thing and all the technology. This has been on my mind as I've been learning how to do this. You know, basically this is radio. And because it's radio, there are possibilities. There are sonic possibilities. And uh, this is a show. And as I master the technology, perhaps there can be more showmanship? Or should I just keep talking? I- I'm not really sure. But it does occur to me that like sound effects could be added. You know, disgusting sound effects, applicable sound effects. If I'm uh, talking, for instance, and, and, and engaging in some narrative uh, storytelling type stuff with atmospherics, and I'm telling you a story about how I'm walking through a meadow, I could potentially include some sort of sound effect where, you know, there's nature sounds and, and you feel like you too are in a meadow with me frolicking. That could be possible. Uh, It could also, if I'm telling some sort of story involving intense personal anguish, uh, some sort of painful, humiliating scenario from my past, I could potentially set that story to uh, some sort of touching music to heighten the emotional effect. Those sort of things are possible now that I'm doing uh, a podcast and I have this equipment in my office. Uh, And speaking of... um, you know, intense personal anguish, humiliating stories from the past. Uh, Yesterday, I woke up thinking about an event from my past. This was many years ago. It was 1997. I was on the Appalachian Trail. I was hiking. I was with my my old dog, Merlin, who is no longer with us, RIP. We were in Maine. We were in a motel room, taking a night off the trail, resupplying. We had just gotten out of the 100-mile wilderness, And uh, I remember there was a driving rain, a cold rain in August. I was in this motel room, and I was writing a letter to Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon. Uh, Why was I doing that? I was looking for work. I was thinking about the future. I was imagining what I was going to do when I left the trail, and I had to go out into the world and try to enter the workforce. And I had a film degree. I didn't really know what to do with it. I was directionless. That was kind of why I was out on the, the Appalachian Trail for three months by myself with a dog. And I decided that maybe I would write them a letter and I would try to be a PA on one of their movies. I had seen Dead Man Walking. I think that was what was fueling this. I had seen Dead Man Walking. I thought it was good. It was powerful. I figured if I could like go PA on one of their films, carry some cables, uh, run errands, what have you, that maybe this would be uh, my way in and that I could learn something. 
Uh, I also uh, have an uncle who knows Sister Helen Prejean. He's a priest. He lives down in Louisiana. He knows Sister Helen. Sister Helen wrote the book, Dead Man Walking. So my strategy, I think, was I was going to write this letter. Uh, I was going to send it to my uncle. He was going to pass it off to Sister Helen. Sister Helen was going to pass it off to Tim and Susan. That was the idea. So I'm hunched over this little desk in this shitty motel room in Maine, and I'm writing by hand a letter uh, of some sort, some sort of a job request letter. And I decide, since I don't have very many qualifications, that I'm going to tell them a story. And I'm trying to be charming. And I don't know if you've ever done this before, where you're trying to apply for something, and you, you can't resist the impulse to try to be charming and funny, and you overdo it. Pretty much any of that in that kind of scenario uh, amounts to overdoing it. But especially when you're 21 and you've been in the woods for three months, you're prone to this sort of mistake. Uh, I certainly was. And so I write this letter and I tell them this story about when I was like seven or eight years old and I'm in a park with three of my buddies, Ryan and Ryan and Nathan, my boyhood friends uh, in Wisconsin. And we're in this park and we're getting bullied by the neighborhood bully. His name was John. And uh, he was older than us. He was, you know, it was, it was light stuff. He was putting us in headlocks. He wouldn't let us pass. It was that kind of thing. And so this went on for a while until he got tired of it. He decides he's done with us. He's going to walk away. So he starts walking away. He's 15 yards away. I reach into my backpack. I pull out a pencil, a number two pencil, a sharpened yellow number two pencil. And my idea is I'm going to throw it at him. I'm going to throw it at this bully. I'm going to hit him in the head we're going to run. And that's going to be our victory. That's going to be our revenge and our adrenaline rush. So he's 15 yards away. I throw the pencil. I throw it in a high arc up into the afternoon air. I watch it sail end over end. It's heading straight towards him. And it lands point down in the back pocket of his blue jeans. I shit you not. This is what happened. I throw this pencil end over end in a high arc and it, it lands in the back pocket of his jeans, point down. He walks in stride, never notices it, walks away, my pencil in his back pocket. I tell this story to uh, Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon. I never heard back. Uh, I, I put the letter in an envelope. I sent it to my uncle, the priest, and funneled it to them through a nun. Not something that I'm entirely proud of. Uh, something that still causes me uh, some embarrassment to this day, but you make mistakes in life, I guess. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. 
Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Anyway, uh, moving on to bigger and better things. Today's show, our guest, my guest, Emma Straub. Emma Straub, uh, bookseller in Brooklyn at Book Court, author of the novella Flyover State, the story collection Other People We Married, and forthcoming from Riverhead Press, a novel, her debut novel, called Laura Lamont's Life in Pictures. Uh, this is a very talented writer. I think she's a rising star. I think a lot of people think that. Uh, she's also just kind of a relentlessly positive force of nature. You just like her. She's a likable person. She's got that, uh, and she's talented, and I don't know. I think there's just a lot of people out there who are sort of cheering her on, and you get to listen to her talk to me. So so now, uh, yeah. tell me a little bit. Like, This is what I know about you. Uh, you're mm-hmm. an author... Uh, and tell me if I go wrong at any point. Uh, I will. You work at Book Court, is that correct? You're correct. A, you're a bookseller in addition to being an author. Uh, yes. you, you seem to me, like my version of you in my mind, is that you're like incredibly well-adjusted. You seem very um, bright and sunny and cheerful and not like twisted mentally. Am I correct? Or... <laughs> um, I am well-adjusted, yes. Um, I am sunny. I do. I get scolded at book court for laughing too loudly and for talking to people too much. So yeah, I mean, I am um, I am a well-adjusted chatterbox. I think that part of that comes from having a father who writes very dark and scary books. Um, so like, I grew up in a house with like you know. Um, many copies of like zombie movies and um, obscure weapons and um, you know pictures of dead bodies and things like that. Um, and, your fa- and your father, I- we should we should uh, clarify. Your father is the author Peter Straub. Yes, Peter Straub. He has written nineteen novels, I think, which is a lot. Um, yeah, I think that's why I'm so sunny. You know, it, it has something to do with, with um, reacting to that. Although my father himself is a fairly sunny individual. so Well, that's the thing. We're all- so now your work, uh, you know, is your work darker than you are? Would you categorize it as such? Because sometimes I feel like people who are, who are super dark in person write maybe lighter stuff or, com- you know, more comedic stuff. Or people who are uh, super light in person might deal with the darker stuff creatively. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. One one of my friends um, who I, a, a, another writer whose name is Adam Wilson, who I work with at Book Court, he told me after he read my book that he was really um, relieved to know that I, I sometimes had dark thoughts. <laughs> that's how I feel. And that I wasn't always in a good mood and that I was, in fact, very sarcastic, which I am. Um, but... Yeah, I, I think that I I do I, I I care very much about being friendly to people, and I always want people to like me. So I'm nice to people, even if I think they're assholes. Um, but in, in my fiction, I can be much more ruthless. Okay, this is good. This comforts me, Emma. I, I need to know. This. <laughs> but I do, you know, I do like um, I do like to bake 
I often bake for people. Well, see, this is so the other thing. Have... It's like I see you online, and it's like you know you're, you're cracking jokes, you're super chatty, you're baking cupcakes. I'm like this. I want this girl's <laughs> life. You know, I want to be friends with her. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like I, I was teaching a class um, for this local workshop here in New York called the Sackett Street Writing Workshop. I was teaching a class that just ended last night, and I baked them in apple rhubarb cobbler for the last class. And they all looked at me, I think, like I was a little bit insane. Um, But they ate it anyway. They didn't worry that I was poisoning them, which I didn't. No, of course. I mean, that's who who wouldn't love that? Who who, who could look down their nose at that, for God's sake? Yeah, yeah. And I ate the leftovers for breakfast this morning, and it was even better. So now, even better than last night. Okay, so tell me, like today, just to get like a, a snapshot of a day in the life. Like, what have you done today? How has your day gone? Um, today, I have done very, very little. I'm right now. I'm waiting for notes on my novel from my editor at Riverhead. So I am doing very little, but twiddling my thumbs. My big plan for the day was to watch last night's episode of True Blood, uh, but I didn't even get to that because I had lunch with one student from this class that I just mentioned, and then I had coffee with another student from that class, Um, and... Uh, then this evening I'm going to a book party for Rebecca Wolf, who's, um, you know, the editor of Fence and the author of a new novel that's coming out from Riverhead, uh, called The Beginners. Um, so that's, that's my literary life today. It's, it's very low impact. And, and you live in Brooklyn? Is that correct? Or is I, I live, I live in Brooklyn, New York. I do. How, how's that? And did were you raised in New York, or did you move? There? I was. Yes, I grew up. I grew up on the Upper West Side in Manhattan, um, and then I left. I went to college in Oberlin at Oberlin in Oberlin, Ohio, um, which was a terrifying place. There are like two stoplights, and everyone is depressed and miserable. And uh, I I'm from Indiana. Four I years. Get it. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, I spent four years just drinking as much beer as physically possible and eating as many tater tots as physically possible, which is a lot of tater tots. Sure. Um, so then I then I ran back to New York, um, where I happily stayed until I went to graduate school um, in Madison, Wisconsin, which is a wonderful place. Um, and then I moved back to New York. So why Wisconsin? Uh, because they accepted me. Oh, because, well, I, uh, I should I should mention I have was I was born in Milwaukee, so I have uh, who are Midwest, you? Yeah, Midwestern roots. I'm a. I was, oh. spent uh, like the first eight years of my childhood essentially in uh, Cedarburg, which is just north of Milwaukee. Yes, yes, of course. Um, both my my entire family is from Wisconsin, and both of my parents grew up in Milwaukee. Um, so I have I have only fond feelings for the place. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's true for them. Having grew up there, no, but, I, but I have, I, I have like really it. warm memories of it. I mean, I was it was like you know birth until I was ten, and I just yeah. I, I loved I loved it. You know, I had a great time yeah. there. I had great friends, and I think the people up in well, I call it the Great White North are sort of underrated. Uh, <laughs> they don't get the credit they yeah. deserve. Well, I mean, now now everybody's crazy for you know Bonnie there. so people think that Wisconsin is cool again because he's friends with Kanye West and. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I, I loved I loved being in Wisconsin more than I can say. It 
I thought that, I mean, for me, having a break from New York was really um, healthy, both for me personally and um, as a writer. And I can't, I can't say enough good things about Wisconsin. My, my neck, the novel starts in, in um, Door County, Wisconsin, and then uh. it moves on. It moves actually west to Los Angeles. Um, Where I am currently. Takes place, in, place in L.A. Yes, I know. Um, but it does start in Wisconsin, and there, there are a couple of chapters that take place in, in Door County, which is Wisconsin's thumb, the thumb to Wisconsin's mitten. Exactly. Now, when you were at uh, Madison, were, were you studying with Lori Moore? Did you study with her? I was. I was. I, I, I went... I went to Madison because I loved Lori so much. I just absolutely worshipped her. Um, and then I was delighted to discover that she is as funny and smart and wicked in person as she is on the page. Um, well, I have a theory she, about her. I have a theory about her. Oh, what's your theory? No, I've, I've just been thinking about her because, I, I uh, you know, there's some appeal that she has, like a, a specific special appeal and, and yeah. it's across the spectrum, but like I'm, I'm going to get gender specific here and say that male writers in unusual numbers tend to gravitate towards her. And I think that she might be like the the literary equivalent of like Helen Mirren or Meryl yes. Streep, where yes. there's sort of something sort of maternal. There's like a maternal feeling, but at the same time, sort of an attraction. I don't know what it is. Yeah, Lori is Lori is deeply sexy. She is deeply sexy. I there were other um, Dean Bacopoulos. This will embarrass him, but that's okay. Um, told me that because he he went to the MFA program in Madison, also that the boys in his class, when they got stories back from Lori, they would smell them to see uh, if they smelled like. <laughs> what does Lori? Let's let's set the record straight. What does Lori Moore smell like? We, we need to know. <laughs> Um, Lori, well, hmm, I can't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I can't, I can't, um, adequately describe her perfume, but I, but I will say that my husband who moved out to Wisconsin with me for my MFA, um, had an experience once where he was standing in the bookstore in Madison and someone, something behind him smelled so good that he turned around and it was Lori. Oh, it. <laughs> so I think it's some sort of pheromone thing. Yeah, I mean she is she's a fox. She's a stone cold fox. There, there are really no two ways about it. And a nice person, like when you're in her yes. class. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, I love Lori. I love Lori very much. Um, and I feel really lucky that I got to study with her and that I get to hang out with her still. Um, she has been so supportive of me and just really encouraging and, and, and hilarious. I mean, she is hilarious and, um, brilliant. And she really. smells terrific. This is awesome. And this, she smells good. This is, <laughs> this is the insight that I want to bring to my listeners. I want them to know these things. <laughs> so you're at Madison, you're working on fiction, obviously you're workshopping it. Mm -hmm. And then you mm -hmm. leave Madison, you return to New York, mm -hmm. and you move to Brooklyn. Like, what did you leave yeah. Madison with? Did you is flyover state stuff that you were workshopping there? Yeah, I um about half a dozen about about half the stories in the collection were things that I workshopped. 
um, so I had a good sort of sturdy base already um, for my collection. But I wasn't I wasn't planning on trying to send it out to publishers. I didn't think. Um, I don't know. I just I I never I I always heard how hard it was to get story collections published, um, and I always thought of myself as a novelist, um, <laughs> even though I'd never um, published one. I, I I wrote three novels before I went to my MFA program, um, and then another one when I was in Madison after my program was over. Um, and so even though nobody was interested in, in the least in publishing these novels, I always thought of myself as a novelist um, because I believe in self-delusion. <laughs> um, and so I, I didn't ever consider trying to publish the stories as a collection. But then um, this wonderful, wonderful creature, Dave Daly, um, who edits the website Five Chapters, which is a fabulous website, um, if people aren't familiar with it, they publish one story every week in five installments, Monday through Friday. Um, Dave had published a story of mine called Putinesca on the Five Chapters website, and he approached me about doing a collection because he wanted to move into print. And when someone um, approaches you and says, I would like to publish your short story collection, will you let me do that? I think the answer is yes. Sure, of course. <laughs> My answer was yes. Um, and it's been so much fun. I mean, I, I had, you know, I I always, again, I, I always assumed that I would enjoy this sort of thing, like doing readings and traveling around and talking to people. Um, just the way I always thought of myself as a novelist, I always, like, felt quite sure that this would be one of my um, strengths as an author, that I would be tireless and um, irritating to all. Um, <laughs> but, but I, you know, I have. I've just been, I've done, I think, about 30 readings since the book came out in February. Um, and it's been so much fun. I've been, I've met so many nice people and I've baked so many batches of brownie with, brownies with sea salt. <laughs> so, I baked so many batches of brownies from my various readings that my husband now refuses to eat them because <laughs> he's given up. <laughs> so, so you like like a reading is an environment you feel comfortable in. You like standing up in front of people and reading? Like that's something that comes easy? Yeah, I do. I do. You know, I, I've always been ham. Um, and I've always, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a, like, I'm a classic little sister where like I, I just want people's attention all the time. Um, and I will do like a stupid little dance or like make a funny face in order to, to get people to look at me. Um, and I, I've had so much fun doing the readings. One of the really nice things about working at book court is that first of all, you know, I, I feel so comfortable there because, you know, I'm, I'm there all the time anyway, that when I had my big, um, party, when the book came out there, I just I felt like I was in my living room, so I was really relaxed and at ease, and um, that has sort of carried over that feeling where where I don't get nervous anymore um, when I'm doing readings or, or other events. I just I just enjoy them. It doesn't so feel it, so it doesn't feel uh, it doesn't feel like masturbatory or anything to read from your own book. Like that's the I might just I think I have like a, a neurotic thing about it, but I always feel like. You know, I'm standing up there reading from a book, and I feel well, like... it is. 
It does. I mean, I, I will say it does. It does get a bit boring if you read the same thing. Like there are a couple of stories that I've read a number of times, and I am just sick to death of them. And you know, I I try to move on. And I've it's it's nice that there are short story collections. I think are actually really easy to read from. You know, where there are twelve stories in the collection, so there's a lot for me to pick from. I, with the novel, I don't know how that's going to work. Um, because I sort of hate when people read um, and they have to explain everything beforehand and they stop in the middle to explain everything you need to know. Um, I really don't like when people do that at readings. And I fear that that's what will happen to me when I, when my novel comes out and I, I do readings where I say, oh, but, oh, God, I forgot you need to know, you know, X, Y, or Z. Context. Um, yeah. Well, so, Who hits? Who needs context? <laughs> well, and, and now also working at Book Court, you're obviously seeing a lot of readings by other authors, correct? Yes, yes, yes. I, I attend a shocking number of readings um, at Book Court uh, and at other independent bookstores around New York City. I mean, I'm at Word, um, which is in Greenpoint on an extremely regular basis, and McNally Jackson and Greenlight, all the all the indies in Brooklyn, the community bookstore. There are there are a great number, and I you know I know people who work at all of them, and um, yeah, I think I think you have to I think you have to be supportive of other people. You know, if I ex- expect people to come to my readings, I sure as hell better show up to theirs. And um, I actually I actually love readings. I know some people find them totally tedious. Um, but I love it and I love hearing people answer questions and, um, you know, I like clapping for writers. <laughs> <laughs> writers, writers, you know, spend so much time alone in their rooms. Um, but I think it's really nice to, to show up when they are actually forced out of their little mole holes. Um, it's nice to show up and, and clap for, for your friends. Well, sure, and you've got to learn. You've got to learn a lot about what works in a reading. I mean, have you, have you seen people who are really good at it? I mean, who's somebody that comes to mind who's just like a badass reader? Colson Whitehead is incredible. He um went. He came to the court for the paperback release of of Sag Harbor soon, fairly soon after I started working there, and he had. Like he, there, there was like an audio visual <laughs> element. Like he made us all listen to some disco song. I think it was Earth, Wind, and Fire. I can't remember. Um, but he is really, really funny. I, I, I tend to enjoy anything that's funny. I saw um, Jumpa Lahiri read this year at um, at AWP in DC, and. I love her. I love her books so much. I think she writes the most beautiful sentences on earth. And yet, there was not an ounce of humor in what she read. And she read for about 45 minutes, or at least it felt like that. Um, and I and I almost fell asleep. You know, I mean, so I, I think that having a sense of humor is really key to having a good reading. Um, you know, and that that's even true, like, um, Megan O'Rourke read at Book Court from her book, The Long Goodbye, which is, you know, all about her mother dying of cancer, and it's all about grief, and how, you know, sort of we as a culture sort of don't, don't know how to 
deal with other people's mourning um, or our own. Even her reading was funny because, she, you know, she, she knew that it was hard material and so she made some jokes and, and the um, the atmosphere in, in the bookstore lightened quite a bit. Um, you know, I think people people need that. Well, especially you know, it's, especially it's, it's with a cancer memoir. I mean, with with a, a book of that with yeah. that subject matter, you've got to you've got to lighten the load a little yeah. bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so now I'm curious to know more about uh, the fact that you're a bookseller, the fact mm-hmm. that you're uh, you know uh, coming up as a writer at this particular time in this particular publishing environment, which I think we can agree is in <laughs> flux. Is in flux a good way to put Healthy, it? Healthy, robust. Yeah, robust. But I mean, it's also going through a lot of changes and. The landscape is is different than it was even like ten years ago, uh, in in a lot of ways at least. And so I'm curious. It seems to me like what you're doing, getting out there, being a bookseller, meeting all these writers, interacting with readers, and hand selling books, and doing all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's actually, you know, um, quite a good thing to be doing. Maybe I'm, I'm sure you're not the first author who's worked in a bookstore, but um, yeah. you know, I just feel like especially doing it in Brooklyn in a in a community that really still reads and in a community with such great proximity to publishing, uh, you know, publishing's epicenter, it's probably placed you pretty well in terms of being able to build a network and get to know people and to get a sense of what it takes. Is that, is that accurate? Um, Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I, at Book Court, not only do I meet um, other writers and readers, but I also, you know, have met scores of agents and editors and publishers and people like that. You know, they, um, a lot of people who work in publishing live in the neighborhood and come in and shop or come in and go to events. So, yeah, I mean, I have absolutely met a lot of people, um, in publishing that way, um, one of my friends who worked at Bookwork met his editor there. <laughs> you know, I, I can't, um, I don't have a story that's quite that um, much like a romantic comedy, but, you know, it, it is it is absolutely true that that being at Bookwork or, you know, at any of the independent bookstores in Brooklyn, I think is gives gives me a, a, a unique and privileged um, outlook in terms of, of the publishing landscape. Well, yeah, and it's like, you know, they, there's always, you know, you hear these stories about, uh, or you hear advice, you know, go to go to writers' workshops, go to writers' conferences, go to AWP, do things like that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like, you know, with, with the indie bookstores in Brooklyn in particular, uh, it, they come to you. You know, you don't even have to yeah. leave, you leave <laughs> your place of business. You just kind of sit there and they come in and start talking to you. It's true. It's true. I, I mean, and I, you know, even though I grew up... Um, with what I thought was a fairly well-rounded understanding of the publishing universe because my dad was a writer and he had a lot of friends who were editors or agents or whatever. Um, there was a lot that I didn't understand about publishing until I started working at Book Court. Um, and I think... Like what? I think... Um, I guess the way the way books are actually sold. Like the way... I, I had always envisioned... Um, you know, the writer's job um, up to the point of sale, 
you know, like it's sale to the publisher. I, I had never really thought about the other half of the equation sure. where the, where the book um, is printed and bound and then shows up in a box, um, you know, uh, on the floor of a bookstore. I, I never really thought about that. And it, it has made me um, aware of a lot, you know, like you can really tell um, what books a publisher is pushing um, by, you know, the number of copies that come into a bookstore. You can really tell um, what, you know, just by, like, the production value. You know, you, you can tell, you know, when, when someone has sprung for the nicer paper. Um, you can tell, you know, if somebody's got French flaps on their paperback original. You know that there, there was, there's sort of money um, and thought going into that. Um, and then from a book selling perspective, you can, you know, it's, it's been really fun for me to, to sell people books that I really love. Like I have sold so many copies of like, um, Kate Christensen's novel, The Great Man, just because I love it. I think it's a great book. I think that it's, you know, any any reader of contemporary fiction should read it because it's funny and warm and um, surprising. And the same goes for, you know, sort of some of my all-time faves, like, you know, Donna Tartt's The Secret History, where I, if anyone just comes in and says, okay, I'm going on vacation, I don't know what to read, what should I read? I ask them if they've read The Secret History, and if they say no, then I sell them that book, and they read it, and they come back, and they tell me that they loved it. Um, That's a good you know, one. My, yeah, God, isn't it? And then, like, you know, more recently, um, I've been selling people um, John Williams' Stoner, which is, you know, one of the New York Review of books, um, you know, reprinted classics. Uh, that is a novel that I never would have picked up except that one of my colleagues at book court told me I had to read it and I did and it blew my mind and now I sell it to people every single day. <laughs> okay, so stop there because you're the second person who's brought this book up to me in the last couple of weeks and I wasn't even yeah. aware of it. I mean, I hate to say it, yeah. but I wasn't. And so is this about, yeah. a, is it about a stoner? I mean, or is it No, about... it's not about a stoner. Okay, um, damn. It's about a guy whose last name, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, there are other books that are about stoners. You can find those easily find on your own. Um, <laughs> this is stoner, John William Stoner, is um, about a man whose last name is Stoner. Um, it's an extremely sad book. Um, I won't tell you too much about the plot for fear that you will not read it because you think it sounds boring. Um, but basically, it's the story of a man's life, and um, it's not. It's got a lot more low notes and high ones. Um, <laughs> it's, about a sick but, man, it's about a sick man who can't get medical marijuana. Is that right? <laughs> That's the cliff notes version, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, really, the book is so... The sentences are so gorgeous um, that you don't care how depressing it is because you love him so much. Um, you know, by the end of the first page, you're, you're, you're so sold on this guy's life that you just have to stay with it no matter how sad it is. Okay. Well, that's a good wreck, you know? And so yeah. you, uh, you know, you get to see these people come in and out of the store, you hand sell books, you get to see how the publishers 
uh, are pushing a book based on how the books mm-hmm. look from a production value standpoint mm-hmm. and also from a number of copies shipped standpoint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you get that. And then you have, um, you know, all these people coming in that work in the business that you're getting to know, mm-hmm. whether they're high, mm-hmm. pro- high profile to low profile writers to mm-hmm. uh, agents, to editors. So this is mm-hmm. like, a, I, I can see how the, this is working well. And I guess the question that's, that's popping up in my mind is that I think of you and I think of, uh, you know, your particular gifts and your particular personality uh, and how nicely it, it fits there because uh, you're so good socially and not all writers are. And so I'm trying to kind of uh, imagine myself sitting in the shoes of a writer who's out there who might not be uh, as good socially, who might not be as comfortable at a reading or who might not be as good uh-huh. – you know, just talking to people, uh, you know, yeah. getting to know yeah. folks and, and networking and stuff like how do you or what kind of advice would you have for somebody who is trying to publish or might be publishing on a, on a small press or something, their first yeah. story collection or their first novel? Yeah. Like, what should they be doing? Well, I would say, I mean, I think you, you and I have um, a friend in common, Lauren Sarand, who is a phenom. Um, at this sort of stuff, she, you know, she's an independent PR person who does a lot of work on books, and she just wrote a column for Poets and Writers that I think is um, absolutely required reading um, for anyone uh, in this position, because I, I think you're right that, like, yeah, I am chatty, and I could talk to a brick wall for three hours about all the <laughs> books that I like, <laughs> and sometimes I do, um, <laughs> But, you know, that, I, I recognize that that's not true for everyone. I have a lot of friends who are writers who are extremely shy um, and who don't feel comfortable being on Twitter or Facebook or whatever um, because they, they find that it's just, you know, too, too extroverted for them that they don't, they don't like putting themselves out, out there in that way. And I think that the answer um, that... Is to be it, friends it, with you. That, <laughs> well, well, yes, and I mean that will work um, for for some people. Um, but I, you know, I think that there is a way for everyone to use sort of the new social media tools um, to suit to suit their own personality. You know, wh- whether it's being on Twitter or Facebook, or whether it's just you know having a blog of your own um, or, you know, whether it's making a podcast or whether it's contributing to, you know, a place like the Nervous Breakdown where there are a lot of voices um, sort of gathered in one place. I think that there, there's a way for, for everyone, um, no matter how shy you are, to be involved in this way. And, you know, Twitter, I love Twitter, <laughs> but it is not for everyone. Why do you love um, it? What's it? What is the appeal? I mean, do you just like the? Oh God! I mean, I guess I just I it, I've always um, <laughs> I've always been an oversharer, <laughs> I guess, um, and so the the form really appeals to me that you sort of um, you know can can talk about whatever you want all the time and whatever hour of the day you're awake. There are other people on Twitter um, chattering away. I like that it's it really is a community of people. I've met I've met a number of writers um, in the last couple of years that I've been on Twitter. Um, you know, I, I meet them on Twitter. 
um, and then have met and made friends with them in real life um, and formed, you know, truly um, solid friendships um, that way. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's funny. I think it's funny to live tweet, uh, you know, your cousin's bar mitzvah or whatever. You know, I I think it's a really good way to entertain yourself. Um, My husband um, likes um, sort of not heavy metal. I wouldn't say heavy metal, but he likes um, a kind of music that I don't like. So I find that if he drags me to a concert with him, that if I just have Twitter to keep me company and I can describe all of the, like, enormous sweaty dudes in beards on Twitter, that then I'm having a good time, too. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's, 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 um, it's a marriage counseling, basically. I get it. I get it. And so and I do enjoy, like, live tweeting. My question then becomes, like, how do you, how do you, I mean, I guess working at the bookstore, you have time to like be on your phone. You're, you're tweeting from your phone. Is that correct? Um, at the bookstore, at, when I, when I'm at book court, I tweet as, from book court's Twitter. Oh, right. Um, so I do that on the computers at work. I don't, I don't tweet, you know, from, from my own personal account when I'm at work. Sure you don't. Um. I actually don't. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, if my boss is listening to this, I only tweet about book court. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, I love, I actually love tweeting from book court because it's a whole different um, group of people than, than my own personal sort of followers. And how many, how many I'm... followers do you have? What's your, what's your handle at, at Twitter so we can blow this um, on t- on, I am found on Twitter at Emma Straub, just as I am found in real life. Um, I think I have a little over 5,000 now. Holy cow. That's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, it's kind of a lot. For an author, you you know, I I guess there are authors out there who have like big follow, you know, big, huge, uh, a hundred thousand followings. But I mean, I I mean, Maude, you know, Maude Newton, who has an amazing blog and is a wonderful writer. She has about a hundred thousand I don't know how that happened. Like 5,000 seems like a lot to me, but it also seems like, you know, a number of people that I encounter, you know, in various, like it's, it's not, it's not a mind blowing number. Like a hundred thousand thought that is really a lot. Wait, so Maude Newton has a hundred thousand Twitter followers. Yeah. Wow. Well, and so the thing is, doesn't that make you believe in like good in the world though? Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's amazing, but I, you know, I'm trying to, to think about why that is. I mean, I guess she's got the blog and she's been doing this forever. I mean, she's sort of like, yeah, she's one of the original book bloggers. Is I mean, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think she's had that blog for about 10 years, maybe more. Yeah. That's an Um, eternity. Yeah. And, but but she's also, you know, she's also like an information aggregator. I mean, I don't want to sound reductive, but you know what I mean? Like she's like a source, like people go to her to find out what's going on. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I think like That's for me, true. like people come to me just to find out, like you know what, how much butter to put in their chocolate cookies, <laughs> or like they want to know what Maud's doing. What's Maud doing? Will you tell me? <laughs> uh, but no, you know, I think yeah. that I think that when somebody is a source of information and is consistent with it, like this is my problem is that mm-hmm. a, I you know with all the various things I have going on, um, you know, at the nervous breakdown, and I have a ten month old, and blah blah blah. Like it's just mm-hmm. it's hard for mm-hmm. me to tweet consistently enough to make it happen. Yeah. Uh, though I am like, you know, I constantly tell myself I should do it more. But then the, the other thing is that, um, you know, then it comes down to actually tweeting. 
and I'm, I'm I freeze up. I don't know if this is like a, an outgrowth of like a, a bigger writer's block. You have block performance or, anxiety. I might. I don't know. Or like it's like, do people really want to know like what I had for breakfast, or do I really? People want to know, Brad. They do. People want to know. Yes. Well, maybe I'll start. Tw- I'm going to start tweeting more when this, you know, this this podcast, and I'm obviously <laughs> going to be trying to communicate with people. This is this is the whole point of the podcast, I think, and and me doing yeah. this, and calling it other people is, you know, to to get authors talking to each other and to get me talking yeah. to other people as opposed to myself. It's yeah. It, I think a podcast where you just talk to yourself would be a little sad. <laughs> you know, if you're like, hey, Brad, <laughs> hey. Don't tempt did me. you think breakfast was good today? <laughs> I did. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, happen. you could try it. I think you should try it at least once. No, there's, you know, <laughs> it's like the, the intros at the beginning of the show, I'm going to do a little bit of a spiel and then it'll be into the interview. But I think people, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of that goes a long way, you know. <laughs> yeah. So now tell me about how you balance all this stuff. You know, you're married, you work at the bookstore, you're writing books, you're baking cupcakes. Like, how does it, I mean, are you... Well, it seems like you work fast. Do you work fast? Yeah, well, and that, I mean, and that's only a small fraction. Of, I mean, I also, you know, I, I volunteer for an organization called Girls Right Now, which pairs up um, teenage girl writers with professional women writers. Um, I also, my husband and I have a design business together where we do screen printing and, um, you know, design wedding invitations and things like that. Um what else do I do? I have, I mean, I have, I have lots of, oh, and I, I, I've been teaching this class for Sackett Street. Um, I have lots of jobs, but I've always had lots of jobs. And I, I, I think that, you know, it's sort of, um, in some ways it's easier to get more done the busier you are. I found that in college. I couldn't, yeah, I, I couldn't understand. Like when I was in graduate school, I some friends of mine um, would have a really hard time finishing finishing their stories in time for the workshop um, as if we had, you know, as if we had nine to five jobs and we're like, you know, really doing other things. Whereas I was, you know, I thought like that's what we're there to do. So I was writing constantly. Um, and I, I feel like that now, like I, I have, I have enough time. Like I don't have a full-time job, uh, which gives me the time to do all these other things. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I'm I'm a busy girl. And it sounds I'm like you're happy girl. with it. Sounds like you're happy with it. you like that you like all the different things that you're doing. It's not like you're busy yeah. doing stuff you don't like to do. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I mean, I I love I love all these funny little jobs that I have. Um, so yeah, I mean, I you know, I think there are a lot of hours in the day. I also require a lot of sleep. Like I I'm like a 90 year old woman basically, and I go to bed at like 10.30 every night and I sleep for 10 hours. (laughs) Do you really? I do. Do you know who you're talking to? You're talking to a guy who's 10 months into his first kid and you're telling me you sleep 10 hours a night? (laughs) Christ. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Brad. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure it won't always be this way. Um, Oh, not if you have children, it won't. I guarantee you. Right. (laughs) That, uh, that is over. <laughs> All right. Well, then just let me enjoy this while I can. Yeah. Enjoy your enjoy your dreams. Your ten hours a night. No wonder you're no wonder you're baking cupcakes. Just wait. You'll have that kid, and all of a sudden it'll be no more cupcakes, no more sunshine. No. I'm kidding. No gloom, gloom, and microwavable dinner. <laughs> That's when you'll go through your cutting phase. You know, it'll, yeah. it'll happen then. You'll goth out. I've been waiting. I've been waiting. Oh yeah. No, it'll for be my cutting. That that novel is going to be something. You know. 
<laughs> um, well, you know, a lot of when I um when I met um Jeff Klosky, who's the, the publisher at Riverhead, to talk about um, my novel for the first time, he thought it was hilarious that I com- I had my agent compare um, my novel to Stoner because it is the story of this woman's life and a lot of really bad things happened to her. And he thought that was so absurd that I would, you know, as part of my pitch, um, as part of my pitch, I was comparing it to this totally obscure <laughs> that had gone out of print. But, um, but which is beloved and is making a comeback. So you're, you're prescient, you know, you, you, you had inside exactly. knowledge. I'm working on it. So how's Riverhead? Are you liking them? I mean, I guess, what are you going to say? But I mean, everything's good so far. Um, I like them. I mean, so far, so far, um, I've had, uh, you know, they bought me, um, so they bought me some cocktails. Nice. Um, that's sort of it so far, um, uh, because I'm still waiting on my notes, uh, but they're very nice. They're very nice to me. Um, the, the other day at book court, um, Jeff, Jeff Klosky and, and his five-year-old son were walking by and they, they popped in the bookstore before it was open, which, which Jeff said was very exciting for his son because it was sort of like, you know, behind the scenes, the museum. It's like you gave him like a private, uh, private shopping tour, essentially. Exactly. It's like Michael Jackson used to get when he went to like the Disney store, you know? Right, and Bookward is a lot like the Disney store. Um, well, like <laughs> so Disney much World, in common. You know. yeah. So much in common. Yeah, all the people in the those plushy costumes. <laughs> that's basically Bookward in a nutshell. It's just a whole bunch of plushies. <laughs> reading Stoner. Sitting around reading Stoner. Weeping. Weeping in their plushies. <laughs> So I got yeah. I got questions about uh, you know because I, I come from Milwaukee and then I grew up in uh, mm-hmm. went to like my formative you know puberty years in Indiana uh, mm-hmm. like a far cry from the Upper West Side of Manhattan and so yeah. you know as a literary person with a literary bent and somebody who really loves visiting New York I have this idealized mm-hmm. I mean growing up on the Upper West Side my God like you know like you're just riding the subway by yourself when you're like four and. You have this yeah. sort of like amazing world right outside your door. I mean, what was it like growing up there? Um, well, so <laughs> when yesterday I was at my parents' house, they, they still live in, in the house that I grew up in on, on the Upper West Side, and they were telling me that my um, one of my cousins who was just graduating from high school, who, she lives in the Bay Area, was going to come to visit and my mom said, yeah, and, you know, as a graduation present, I'm going to take her to dinner in a Broadway show. And I said, Mom, why don't you just buy her a bottle of champagne and some whippets and show her a bench in Central Park? <laughs> because that's what I would have wanted when I graduated from high school. Yeah, you um, consider, consider who you're giving the gift to, for goodness sake. Right. Come on, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think growing up in New York City is, is, a, is a wild and wonderful experience. Um, I had a fabulous time. You know, I did, yeah, I, I took the subway to um, school every day. And Where did you go to school? Um, when you grew up there, do you, I mean, you just, how does that work? You know, like I used to walk to my little elementary school, and I guess you can do that, but I mean, how does yeah, that? Yeah, there are some people who do that. Um, I, I went to school, uh, through the eighth grade, I went to school um, on the Upper West Side, fairly near my parents' house, at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Um, 
which is the second largest Gothic cathedral in the world. Um, I am not an Episcopalian. I'm a non-practicing half-Jew, half-Lutheran. Um, There's the Wisconsin, the Lutheran. Yeah, <laughs> how can you tell? Uh, yeah, yeah that's, it's also the tall blonde part, that um, Lutheran part. Um, but I went there and, you know, heard some Bible stories and things like that, which was very pleasant. Um, and then for high school, I went to a school called St. Anne's, which is not what it sounds like. Um, you know, it sounds sort of like pleated miniskirts and all girls and things like that. And in reality, it's this very sort of um, Marxist, wonderful place where there are no grades. Everybody's, you know, smoking outside with their teachers who they call by their first names. Um, <laughs> See, this is what I wanted. Sort of, this is exactly what yeah. I wanted. And I was in Indiana. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was really glamorous. You know, I smoked um, a pack of cigarettes every day, starting when I was fourteen, and I I just thought I was so cool, which I was. Yeah, you were. You were glorious. Um, That's amazing. I used to smoke when I was, uh, you know, Indiana people smoke. I mean, I think we could take just the the state of Indiana could take just about any state, like save maybe North Carolina and Kentucky when it comes to tobacco intake. Yeah. No, that that's one of the great unifiers, I think, for teenagers. So how'd you quit? You quit smoking. I mean, you, you can't be still smoking. I can't imagine you smoking. Maybe you do every once in a while. No, no, I don't. No, I quit. I quit. You don't sneak um, one? I sneak one every once in a while. But yeah. I sneak one every once in a while, but, the, you know, it, they're now fewer and fewer and farther apart um, because now I, I it seems actually totally disgusting to me when yeah. I... I mean, that, that first... That first drag is a really beautiful experience always, and I'm like, oh, right, this. Um, and I can't believe that anyone ever quit smoking. But then afterwards, I feel disgusting, um, and I'm quite glad that I am no longer a smoker. Yeah, no, me too. And yeah. like, the thing is, I, I, I'm disgusted by other people smoking, but yet when it's me, mm-hmm. I'm not nearly as disgusted in that moment. Yeah. And then <laughs> The other thing that I find, though, is that especially now that I get older and I'm in my 30s and... I'm not uh, as resilient as I once was, is that if I go out, I, you know, if I sneak a cigarette, it's because I've had like more than two drinks, yeah. you know, I'm out like, yeah. doing yeah. something. And what I find yeah. is that if I have, you know, five drinks and I wake up, oh. I'm hungover, oh but I'm God. like, I got, you know, I'm, I'm hungover, but whatever. If I have five drinks and I smoke one cigarette, I feel like <laughs> complete ass. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. It's I like do. I mean, for me, it's like terrible. three drinks. But yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, we're getting old, Brad. Is yeah, that what this means? I guess so. But it's also like a situation where, uh, you know, back in the day, old publishing, people smoked, they had drinks with lunch. Like, I feel like everyone's getting healthier. People like, I, I, I'm really, really prone to uh, health trends. And like, my, you know, someone tells you yeah. that like red wine is good for you. Like, that's what I drink now. Like I will drink red wine <laughs> exclusively because it has this stuff in it that makes you sure. live longer. Yeah. And I, I sure. fall for all of that. Uh, <laughs> but back in the day, I just feel like people were a little bit more relaxed about everything and they weren't nearly so analytical about their consumptions. And there's good, yeah. there's goods and bads to that, I guess. Indeed. Indeed. I know. I mean, now I'm so pathetic that when I get off the phone with you, I'm going to go pick up my, my CSA farm share um, you know, like buckets of kale and lettuce and sugar snap peas. You're, you're, so you have, it's about. like a farmer's market type situation? 
Yeah, it's a, a CSA is it's community supported agriculture where basically you pay in advance, um, and then every week you go and you pick up your share of vegetables. All organic and, fruit, and everything. Fresh and eggs. Oh yeah. No pesticides. No pesticides. Ugh. That's so yeah. That's so like 1980. The pesticides. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, but I mean that's great though. You know, like I think I think people being more conscious of uh, of what they eat. You know, that's a good thing. I can't say. I know, but like yeah, I agree that it's sort of depressing to think that like writers are like that. You know, like writers in my mind are like, you know, tough. Like, does Joan Didion do that? She's tough. I don't know. She weighs like 55 pounds, and she <laughs> still smokes a carton of cigarettes a week, I bet. you know. Yeah. Knows? Yeah, she probably just eats like saltines. And, and it's just robust. Yeah. yeah. I don't have that kind of constitution, or at least I don't think that I do. And uh, the other thing is that, and this is maybe why writers are often prone to this kind of stuff, is that have you read any books about food science? Have you read any books like Fast Food Nation or anything like that? Did you ever? Oh, yeah. Yes, I mean, you read a couple of those books, and if you're a reader, that really stuck with me. Those books really had a yeah. big, you know, they had a big impact on my on my brain. Oh, stupid Michael Pollan! <laughs> he just ruined everything. Yeah, I was having. He ruined s- everything. He did. Oh, Brought I'm me never going to be able to have my Burger King fish fillet sandwich ever again. You know, <laughs> the chicken sandwich was. I grew up eating those chicken sandwiches at Burger King. That was yeah. That was really great. Yeah, those were the. Although days. I, you know, I I will say my um, my father-in-law is a Burger King franchisee. So I, so I won't say anything bad about Burger King. Burger King is fantastic. It's all McDonald's. McDonald's <laughs> is really the problem here. It is. <laughs> the evil demon. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what else? What's coming up soon for you? What's the rest of the summer hold? Uh, the rest of the summer is actually I'm doing a house swap with a woman in your fair city, so I will be kicking around Los Angeles for the month of July, which I'm extremely excited about. Um, the sort of goal is that I finish the next draft of my book and that I have, um, you know, all the available resources there for um, further research because the book starts in 1920 and ends in the 70s, so it covers a whole lot of ground. And there's this amazing library. I don't know if you've been um, to the Margaret Herrick library that's owned and operated by the um, Academy of Motion Pictures. No. It's incredible. Oh, my God, it's incredible. If Where you is like it? the movies, you have to go. You know, it's I, it's in a building. It's in a building. Okay, it's in a building in Los Angeles. <laughs> it's in a building in Los Angeles. It's sort of surrounded by green stuff. It's maybe on, I don't know. I'm not good with Los Angeles geography. Well, you're going to learn. It's in a kind of a weird, I know, it's in a kind of a weird, like it's not near any of the places I would be otherwise. Is it near the the academy, like the academy headquarters or whatever down on Los Angeles? Maybe. It's a beautiful sure. building. Is it a beautiful? Is it a beautiful building? Is it like? It's a beautiful building. Yeah, maybe it's that's where a, it is. It's in the beautiful building. Okay. Um, surely you know it. Um, and it's it's this really wonderfully strict library where they only let you bring in a certain you know list of things, and you have to show them your driver's license and get a day pass, and you can bring in your computer but not any pens. You can't bring in a jacket. You can only write in pencil. Um, what the hell? It's got oh, it's amazing though. They have every book on the movies. They have every um, newspaper, you know, every issue of Variety and, um, you know, every 
every industry newspaper magazine uh, from the beginning. So now, are you a big movie buff? I mean, do you consider yourself a big movie buff in addition to being a, a book person? Um, I don't know. I mean, I love. Yeah, I love. I love movies. I do. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't consider myself a buff just because I, I know people with brains like that. Um, you know, who can tell you every movie that Gene Tierney was ever in, and you know, that's not. My brain doesn't quite work like that. Um, it's too lazy. But, but I do love movies, and my book is all about. Um, this woman who becomes a movie star in this, in the studio system. And so I had to learn a lot about, um, the studios and how they worked. And well, what was the inspiration uh, for this? This is, seems like it's way out of, outside of your, uh, personal. It is. Oh, it is. Isn't it wonderful when that happens? I was so bored writing stories about people who were kind of like me, even if they weren't at all autobiographical, you know, I was so bored by the thoughts that they could be, um, in some alternate universe. Um, so this this novel really was inspired by um, an obituary that I read of the actress Jennifer Jones. Um, who Who's that? Do I know won, that? Do I know her? No. I mean, you might. She she won an Oscar in the 40s. Um, she was in a lot of movies. But I had no idea who she was, and I have purposefully stayed away from her movies um, because I didn't, I didn't actually want to write a book about her, you know, um, not about her, but but I was so blown away by her obituary because it was so sad. <laughs> it was so sad. You know, it was filled with suicide and pills and multiple marriages and you know her children dying and all these wonderful things. No cupcakes. Um, no cupcakes there, man. <laughs> um, so I so I wrote a novel about a woman um, who has a sort of similar trajectory. Um, and yeah, so, it was so much fun to research. So now you're, you're just, it. you're just flipping through the obituaries. Is this something you do regularly? <laughs> don't you? Yeah, every <laughs> once in a while, but no, I don't actually. I'm curious. This is, this is a fascinating element. I love obituaries. I love obituaries. I do. I love them. They're wow. one of my favorite parts of the newspaper. So what, how do you read the newspaper? Do you go to obituaries first? Is this like the first thing you go to? Well, I go. I, I read. I read all the weddings. I read all the obituaries. Um, then I read about movies. Then I read about travel. Then I read about real estate. And then maybe I get to the front page. <laughs> and then eventually you get to the new, like the, the news of the day. Oh, and the food and the food section. The food section. Yeah. I'm kind of a sports the guy. The important things first, you know. So what about websites? Like, where do you, where do you go? I mean, uh, I don't want to end on such like a. Uh, a What's the word? Not boring, but just sort of like internet-y note. But I'm curious to know, yeah, what, what do no, you do I online read, I mean, besides Twitter? Bunch. Besides Twitter, what are you there, doing? Um, I read uh, the Paris Review blog. I read The Owl. I read The Hairpin. I read Jezebel. Um, I read Lauren Saran's blog, Lux Lotus. I read... Um, Tumblr. I'm on Tumblr also, so I spend a lot of time reading people's Tumblrs. What is, can, you t- um, can you tell me what the hell Tumblr? I have a Tumblr. Like, <laughs> my website is on a Tumblr. I don't even know what a Tumblr is. What is a Tumblr? Well, I I mean, I think of Tumblr as a, as just a more visual um, version of Twitter, where you have it's the same sort of principle where you you follow people's blogs and they follow yours, um, but 
I mean, I, I, I just think it's more visual. So people post and repost photographs. Um, that, that's how I use it. I use it just as the more visual side. So of, for people who want to see your, your uh, private photo collection should go follow you on Tumblr. Is that correct? <laughs> um, I guess so. I mean, it's not really, it's not even like pictures of me so much. Although I will say, Brad, I really like the pictures that you always include of yourself in the Nerves Breakdown emails where there's usually some, like, kicky background behind you, like Hawaii or, like, a roller coaster, things like that. I'm trying to, I'm trying to personalize. I mean, do you feel like, I and mean, you can be candid with me here, but, like, do you feel like I'm embarrassing myself? I keep asking people this, but... No, I think they're wonderful. I think they're especially wonderful because you're never smiling. <laughs> <laughs> It's because I'm working on a Saturday, and I'm... Uh, You're like, I'm Brad, and I'm sorry to be here. <laughs> I, need to, I need to be more sunny. This is my attempt to be more sunny and, and converse. And I think if I'm talking, people get more of that from me. But uh, when I'm, when I'm, I, I'm not comfortable being photographed generally. And so when I'm self-photographing, I'm always... I'm just focused on making sure that only one of my chins is showing. That's basically where I'm, that's where I'm at right there. Uh, yeah, so you're doing a good job. You're okay. doing a good job. Okay, I just I feel like if you add photos, people better, are better better to look handsome and miserable. You know, brooding. I like to the look word. sunny and have three chins. Brooding, absolutely damaged. Um, yeah, wounded, brooding, maybe. damaged. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you're well, doing a great job. You're doing a great job. Well, you as well. <laughs> I'm, and I got to say, I'm I'm very very glad that we had a chance to talk. Uh, you Me know. too. I've been sort of uh, a fan of yours from afar for a while. I wish you all the best oh, with Laura Lamont. Thank you. And let me know when thank you're out in L.A. We should uh, grab a coffee or something. Yes. That's a date. It's on the podcast. Indeed. That means it's in stone. It's on the record. Okay. Well, yeah. listen, enjoy, enjoy the rest of your uh, day out there in Brooklyn. And uh, Thank you. Hopefully I'll see you soon. Yeah. Thanks for calling. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Break. All right, everybody, there you have it. That's it. That's the show. That is me talking with Emma Straub for an hour. Emma of Brooklyn, New York, telling me about her life, her work, her upbringing in New York City, her cool, permissive high school in New York City, her tweeting, you name it. Uh, what a delightful human being. That really is the word that comes to mind, delightful. Uh, really excited to see what she comes up with in the years to come as a writer. I sense a bright future. And... If you want to check her out on the web, you can go to www.emmastraub.net. And if you want to visit her on the Twitter, you can uh, go to her Twitter handle, uh, which is at Emma Straub. I believe that's what you call it. It's called a Twitter handle. So uh, before I go, one last thought on this whole Tim Robbins, Susan Sarandon, letter, pencil in the pocket thing that I was talking about at the open of the show. I think I figured it out. I think it has to do with the whole one in a million thing. I think that was the thematic thread that I was trying to weave when I was writing them the letter in that motel room in Maine when I was 21. I, I think I actually might have had some logic there. When I was 7 or 8, I threw that pencil. I knew instinctively that I had just hit a 1 in a million shot. How many 1 in a million shots do you hit? Maybe 1 in your life, maybe 2 if you're lucky, 3 if you're crazy lucky. I hit 1. I knew it. Then you fast forward, I'm writing that letter, I'm 21, I'm thinking to myself, this is a one in a million shot, there's no way I'm going to hit it. And so what do I do? I write them a story about the time that I did hit the shot. Does that make any sense? Is there logic there? Maybe there's some sort of logic there. I don't know, I think I'm reaching. Anyway, I'm signing off, back soon with another program. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. 
etc. 